Welcome to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. C.F.W. Walther was a parish pastor, later professor and first president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He was also the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. These sermons were preached from 1840 to 1870, predominantly in congregations of the St. Louis area. Unfortunately, we do not know the specific dates and locations of most of these sermons as they have been lost to time. These sermons were originally preached and published in German and translated by Donald Heck. They're available in two volumes from Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. Thank you for listening. The third Sunday after the Epiphany, Matthew 8, 1 to 13. Grace and mercy and peace be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Amen. Dear friends in Christ Jesus, today Lutherans are often harshly reproached as condemning everything that is not Lutheran. However, Our church is unjustly reproached. We cannot deny that there are a few so-called Lutherans who teach that there is no salvation outside the Lutheran church. All who subscribe to such principles appear to be strict Lutherans. Actually, they are not. They have really withdrawn from the Lutheran church. As far as the heaven is from the earth, so far is our church from teaching that only those can be saved who have been called Lutherans. The Roman church teaches that outside of its church, no one can be saved. It was against this dangerous error that Luther protested. He declared that the true church of Jesus Christ is bound neither to Rome nor the Roman bishop, nor to any place in the world, nor to any person, but alone to God's word. It is to be found everywhere among all nations and languages. Our church teaches that there is only one true saving religion. It is the Christian religion. Therefore, outside the Christian church, you can find neither the true God nor salvation. In Dr. Martin Luther's large catechism, in the explanation of the third article, we read, But outside of this Christian church, where the gospel is not found, there is no forgiveness. Also, there can be no holiness. Furthermore, in the formula of Concord, we read, In him we are to seek the eternal election of the Father, who has determined in his divine counsel that he would save no one except those who know his Son, Christ, and truly believe in him. All Orthodox Lutherans believe and confess that outside the Christian church, or without faith in Christ, there is no salvation. Yet nowhere do they maintain that outside the Lutheran church there is no salvation. No, our church has never drawn up such sectarian principles. In the preface of our public confessions, the Lutheran confessors write the following. About the condemnations, censures, and rejections of godless doctrines, it is not at all our plan and purpose to condemn people who err because of a certain simplicity of mind. Much less, indeed, do we intend to condemn entire churches. 
Rather, it has been our intention and desire in this way to openly criticize and condemn only the fanatical opinions and their stubborn and blasphemous teachers. For we have no doubt whatsoever that, even in those churches that have not agreed with us in all things, many godly and by no means wicked people are found. They follow their own simplicity and do not correctly understand the matter itself, but in no way do they approve the blasphemies. Thus you see, my friends, that our Lutheran forefathers most decidedly rejected and condemned all false doctrine, falsification of the truth, and deviation from God's word. Yet they have just as decidedly also confessed that many pious people, many upright children of God and disciples of Christ, are to be found among the heterodox. This important truth is well worth remembering. Now, since we are invited to do this today by today's gospel reading, let us direct our attention to this truth. Matthew 8, 1 to 13. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleaned. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. In the centurion at Capernaum, we find a true believer who has not joined the Orthodox. This is most important. Christ himself directs our attention to it when he says, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. The heterodox also have upright disciples of Christ. We consider why we do not have to doubt this and the purpose this fact is to serve. We pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you have shown us grace by leading us into your true church. Let us recognize the greatness of this grace. Guard us that in fleshly security we do not rely on this privilege. Let us bear in mind that you have your righteous disciples also amongst your enemies. Even there you can protect them. Yet you will reject many children of your kingdom because they were unfaithful. Therefore, may we be your servants, not only in appearance, but also in truth. Remain firm in the true faith until our end, and thus 
receive the end of our faith, our salvation. Amen. We need not doubt in the least that also among the heterodox are upright disciples of Christ. Scripture has many noteworthy examples. An especially shining example is that of the centurion of Capernaum. He was a heathen. He was awakened to love the Jewish nation, perhaps by the reading of the prophets. According to the report of Luke, the elders of the Jews of Capernaum said of this centurion, He loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Luke 7, verse 5. Yet he did not join the Jewish church. Capernaum was also a very godless city. It was one of those cities, as Matthew writes, in which the greatest number of Christ's miracles had taken place, yet it did not believe. Christ, therefore, says it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on Judgment Day than for this city. Probably the heathen centurion had been offended at the godlessness and unbelief of the Jews and from weakness of knowledge and had not yet joined the visible church. Yet, what a wonderful faith we see in the centurion. He had a servant sick of the palsy and in great pain. Luke tells us that he thought highly of this servant, and therefore, when he heard of Jesus, immediately decided to ask him to help his servant. But he also recognized his unworthiness most keenly. Not only did he dare not come to Christ, but he sent the Jewish elders to pray for him. And when Christ immediately promised to come in order to heal his servant, the centurion also had them say, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. What humility, what faith is reflected in these words? Although the centurion most keenly recognized his unworthiness, he does not doubt that Christ's goodness would be greater than his sins. Bear also this in mind. The centurion was certain that Christ could help even from a distance. He would not have to see and speak to his sick servant. Yes, still more. The centurion desired, as we hear, nothing more than a word from Christ's mouth. That was sufficient. He believed with unshakable certainty that, since his own word accomplished so much, Christ's word would do much more. Yes, at Christ's word, even sickness, death, and hell would have to flee in a moment. In short, nothing was impossible for him. Where in all the gospel stories do we find another faith like that? Nowhere. It was so great that even Christ himself was amazed and exclaimed, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. But why does Christ mention Israel? Evidently, he wants to say, Although Israel is God's people, although the Jew Jewish church is God's true church, I have not found there the humble, pure faith which is built upon the word which this poor heathen has. We have in the centurion conclusive proof that Christ has upright disciples even among the sects. Yes, often the humblest, purest, and most faithful souls can be found among them, who far excel and shame many members of the true church. This centurion is, moreover, not a unique example in the holy writings. We are told that though the Canaanite woman was a heathen, she proved herself such a true heroine of the faith that Christ, again amazed, said to her, O woman, great is your faith. 
Matthew 15. Furthermore, it is noteworthy that the Holy Scriptures repeatedly relate how greatly the Samaritans shamed the Jews. Of those ten miraculously healed lepers, the nine unthankful were unconcerned about Christ, and they were Jews. Only one returned to thank Christ, and he was a Samaritan. Whilst a Jewish priest and Levite with loveless stony hearts passed by that Jew who had fallen amongst murderers, a merciful and friendly Samaritan helped the wretch. If time would permit, I would add many other examples. I would remind you only now of the wise men from the East who worshipped the child Jesus and of the centurion Cornelius in Caesarea. Why is all this related in the sacred scriptures? Certainly, among other reasons, that we should know that there are true children of God, yes, upright disciples of Christ, even among the sects. We can believe that also because of the power which God's word and the holy sacraments have. Let him, whoever he may be, preach the word of God, be he pious or godless, upright or a hypocrite. The former neither increases its power nor does the latter lessen it. The word of God is active and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is always spirit and life, a power of God to save all who believe it. To it is also bound the Spirit of God. He enters the hearts and consciences of men through that word. He causes men to know not only their complete unworthiness, but also God's boundless grace in Christ. God's word kindles in them not only sorrow over their sins, but also trust in Christ and the hope of eternal life. Yes, God's word is so powerful that even a fragment of it its most necessary fundamental doctrines, can work man's salvation. As the seed grows, even if mixed with much chaff, so the word of God grows, even if many human doctrines and errors are disseminated with it. As each seed contains in itself the whole tree, its roots, trunk, limbs, branches, leaves, and fruit, so each part of biblical truth contains in itself the whole tree of saving knowledge. Christ says of the Pharisees, who nevertheless taught much error among with, along with the word of God, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, Matthew 23. If there so therefore also so much error is taught among the sects, and the word of God is preached only in part, nevertheless, that which is God's word retains its divine, enlightening, awakening, converting, comforting power. If only the principal part of the law is preached, along with many other errors concerning the law, it nevertheless remains a thunder that awakens sleeping souls, a hammer that smashes stony hearts. If only the most important part of the sweet gospel is preached with much false doctrine, it nevertheless remains the heavenly dew that refreshes frightened sinners and instills in them confidence in God's mercy. And so it is also with the sacraments. If holy baptism is administered according to Christ's institution, among those who deem it power, a powerless ceremony, it remains a baptism, a washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. If he is baptized, he will be taken up into God's covenant of grace and be reborn a child of God, and become an heir of eternal life as long as he believes it. And if they administer the Lord's Supper according to Christ's institution, the guest eats of his body and drink of his blood, 
He strengthens all believers in their faith, grace, forgiveness of sins, and all the fruits of his suffering and death. As certainly, as among the sects, the word of God, insofar it is still preached among them, and the sacraments, insofar as they are administered according to Christ's ordinance, retain their power, so certainly are there also upright disciples of Christ among them. Yes, the greater the temptation of being destroyed by the poison of false doctrine and letting oneself be torn from the rock of salvation, so much more the noble must these souls be who do not surrender the foundation of salvation. For that reason, Luther calls those believers languishing under the tyranny of the Roman Antichrist the true patterns of the Christian church and much more pious than the great saints. Finally, we dare not doubt that Christ has his upright disciples among the sects, because God's word promises that Christ's kingdom will extend over the whole world. Christ says in our gospel reading today, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. According to this, the saved from all parts of the earth will enter into heaven. Hence, Christians must live in all parts of the world. Yes, in the oldest of all the prophecies of Abraham and Jacob, we read concerning Christ, In him shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, Genesis 22, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, Genesis 49. Moreover, God the Father says to Christ in Psalm 2, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. In Zechariah we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Yes, in Psalm 110, God the Father says to the exalted Son of Man, Rule in the midst of your enemies. How would all these and similar glorious prophecies be fulfilled if Christ did not have his true disciples also among the sects? Has not the true church always been very small? Have not always great numbers of Christians been enticed to follow false prophets? How small would Christ's kingdom be if he had his true disciples only in the church of true believers? Such sectarian thoughts be far from us. No, wherever the voice of the gospel has reached, there, according to his promise, the heavenly word has not returned void. It has won souls for Christ. Wherever holy baptism is administered according to the gospel, the doors of the kingdom of grace have opened, and thousands and millions have entered in. Not only in one corner of the earth does Christ have his spiritual temple. The field where he sows the seed of his word is the whole world. Everywhere he has his true believers. Even in the midst of spiritually proud enthusiasts, Christ has his humble pupils. Even in the midst of self-righteous monks, Christ has his souls hungry for grace. Even in the midst of a wicked Sodom, Christ has his believing, righteous lot. Even in the midst of his enemies, Christ has his friends. In short, I repeat, even in the midst of the sects, Christ has his true disciples. This is now clear to all. 
Let us therefore, secondly, ponder how we should use this fact. Should we use it to consider truth and error equally good? Shall we consider a matter of complete indifference to which church or confession one belongs? Should one stay in the religion in which he was born and reared, since one can still be saved as long as he is a Christian? Or does perhaps the fact that even among the sects God has his children mean that one does not have to be zealous for purity of doctrine, that all Christians should call themselves brothers, and that all, without further ado, unite to form a super-church? Far be it. Although Christ often extolled the Samaritans, he nevertheless says to them, You worship what you do not know. Salvation is from the Jews. John 4.22 That many in the midst of the sects come to true faith in Christ and are saved does not happen because they could come to true faith through error but because many err out of simplicity and ignorance. But when they faithfully accept the truth, in as far as they know it, their errors will not act to their ruin. They are like those two hundred men who joined Absalom and his rebels, and yet remained faithful in their hearts to David, their rightful king. God's word says that they went in their innocence and knew nothing. Second Samuel 15. Thus they often follow false teachers and their sects, and still remain true in firm faith to Christ, their rightful king. Now, whoever for the reason that the simple are saved in the sects, whoever does not seek the truth, yes, wantonly remains in error, yes, even leaves the true religion to join sects, would wantonly abuse God's grace. He would not be guarded by God, but be rejected as an unfaithful servant. Error is like sin. One can remain in grace in sins of weakness, but grace is taken away in the case of willful and wanton sins. One can also remain in grace despite errors of weakness, but deliberate, wanton deviation from God's word deprives one of God's grace. If we have heard that God has his holy children in all sects, let us praise God's mercy, who sustained so many souls among the sects, as he once sustained Daniel in the lion's den. He can render even the poison of false doctrine harmless. But let us not ourselves spring into the lion's den and blasphemously drink the poison of false doctrine. No, let us pray that God may let the pure spring of truth continually flow, sustaining us in the truth until our end. Christ shows us the proper application with the words, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why does Christ add this? Beyond a doubt, he wishes to warn all who belong to the congregation of the Orthodox against the feeling of security. In carnal security, the Jews relied on the fact that they were Abraham's children. They relied on the fact that they were God's chosen people, had the revealed word of God in its purity, and the temple with the true worship. So when the prophets threatened them with punishment, they cried, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah 7, 4. And when Christ rebuked the Jews, 
and especially the high priests, scribes, and Pharisees, and announce their eternal ruin? Their comfort was that they were the true church. They were in no danger. In our text, Christ calls to them. Many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Let that be said also of us, my friends. Let us bear in mind that we who possess the pure evangelical teaching and the unadulterated sacraments have a great advantage over those who had error preached to and impressed upon them from their youth. Let us not think that it is enough to remain in the true church only in name and only have the pure doctrine, diligently hear it, approve of it, and praise it. Ah, no. Let us bear in mind that to whom much is given, much shall be required. The purer our doctrine is, the more highly let us esteem it, the more zealously let us hold fast to it, the more carefully let us guard ourselves against false doctrine. The richer our comfort, which is explained to us from the gospel, the more faithful let us be in the faith. The greater the spiritual benefits that God gives us, the more ardent let us be in our love, and so much the more let us do good works through which we show God our thankfulness. Yes, if we are the children of the kingdom here, happy will we be when we do not walk as children of this world, but as children of the kingdom. Someday we will not be cast out, but will be received into the kingdom of eternal glory. That grant us, Jesus Christ, praised to eternity. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. You've been listening to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. These sermons are available in two volumes as a part of Walther's Works, Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. We thank you for tuning in, and we pray that God's Word has and will continue to be a great blessing in your life.